Thank you for joining Crossroads Community Church today. We're so excited about what God's doing in the lives of the people of our church and the lives of those who are listening online. If you have any questions or want more information about our church, visit our website at www.crossroadsccl.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Now let's jump into the Word with this week's message. Well, we got a lot to uncover today, and I want to get right to the punchline. The punchline is this, is that God wants us to have an unbreakable trust in Him, and He wants us to develop an unbreakable trust in each other as the body of Christ. And there's two things that you need to develop an unbreakable trust, and the first is love, that you live a life looking out for the good of other people that God has called you into relationship with. And after love, you need a loyalty, that you will practice that love with people through the good times and through the hard times. And if you have love and you have loyalty, you will develop an unbreakable trust. And as we see Jesus here, as we go through Matthew 27, we are going to see as He encounters the Roman soldiers the essence of his love and loyalty in the picture of an unbreakable trust that we can have with him, but he models for us in our own relationships, in our own everyday walks, how we can develop an unbreakable trust with each other. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 27. If you're clicking on your phones, go ahead and go there. If you don't have the Scriptures, we'll have it by way of the screen. Now I want to set up the scenario as we've been going through each of these sections of Matthew 27. And we saw last week that Jesus was with Pilate. It was the sixth and final trial that he was a part of. It was a kangaroo court. And Pilate just wants to clean, to wipe his hands of of Jesus and his blood. And so he sends him off to be scourged, to be whipped, to be brutally beaten to satisfy the bloodthirst of the crowd and the mob. And so Jesus is taken by the guards. And it's hard to describe this, but this is what happened. They, they most likely would have taken Jesus. They would have put His hands up on a post. They would have been above His head. And a Roman soldier, hardened and trained and brutal, totally insensitive, to the pain that he would inflict on other people that he was to bring order to in the colonies of the Roman Empire. And he would have been about six feet away from Jesus. And he would have steadied his stance. And with this instrument called a cat of nine tails, nine leather straps embedded with rock, glass, metal, and bone. And he would have steadied his arm. He would have moved his wrist. And he would have flung that cat of nine tails into the back and the body of Jesus, allowing a grab, a dig into his flesh. And then he would have unmercifully pulled that instrument. Flesh, sinew is coming off of Jesus' body. And this would have been done over and over. And pools of blood are coming from the Savior. Six out of ten men died in the process of this scourging. 
And there is Jesus unable to walk. His body has been ripped apart. And two guards would have escorted Jesus back to the praetorium was, was a room in, in Pilate's palace. And it was there at the praetorium that hundreds of Roman soldiers, they would have gathered and they would have hung out and they would have talked and they would have just congregated. It was a place to get away from all of their other duties that they had as soldiers in that province of Judah. And there is Jesus, this man, who is so brutally beaten. And in the story that goes on, it describes men like a bunch of bullies gathering around a small child, ready to engage in the most cruel, cruelest of mockeries and taunts in Jesus' suffering process. We could have by way of the screen Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 27. And here's where it picks up after Jesus has been scourged. It says, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company soldiers around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And let's read this next verse, verse 29, together. Together, please. And then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. We'll stop there. And they spit on him and they took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And after they mocked him, they took off the robe and they put on his own clothes on him. And then they led him away to crucify him. Jesus displayed love. The first thing I want to see if you're in a note writing mood by way of our notes is the love displayed with this crown. The love displayed with this crown. Think about a thorn, a crown of thorns that's on your head. And think about what a thorn symbolizes. Where do thorns come from? We've heard the song back in the 80s, every rose has its thorn. And where does thorns mean? Where do they come from? When you go back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Our original parents, Adam and Eve, and God created all of the plant life and he gave it to our parents to grow, to cultivate, to eat, to enjoy. And when Eve first saw a rose, that beautiful rose, and she would have picked it. She would have looked at it. She would have touched it. She never would have said, ouch, because there was no thorn on it. How many of you like to pick blackberries? It's a painful process, though, isn't it? You've got to dress up. You've got to cover yourself because of all of the thorns and the thistles. But if we had the environment today that they had in the garden of Adam and Eve, it would be a rather pleasant process. You could just go out with your short sleeve shirt and your shorts, and you just pick the black, but you can't do that now. Those thorns and those thistles. Where do they come from? Well, they come from the curse after Adam and Eve had sinned, after they had plunged the world through their rebellion into sin and to the, to the life of difficulty that we currently know. Look by way of the screen, Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Here's what God said, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it 
all the days of your life. And it will produce what? Thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the fields. Those thorns represent the curse. The difficulties that come with life. With almost everything that we do, there is a thorn, there is a difficulty from even minor levels to extreme levels. I remember my, my middle son, Jonathan. He was always the kid when he was out to play. I don't know why the other kids didn't get it as much, but he was always the kid who seemed to get the bee sting. You have a child like that, they seem to get stung. Now that's a thorn, isn't it? That wasn't in the original creation. You go to to enjoy a picnic. And who are you competing with? The flies who want your food. You're swatting them away. It's part of the thorns. You go for a bike ride on the Wadhams to evoke a trail, which Brenda and I like to do. And who are you riding with? The mosquitoes. You've got to put that spray on. They're on the journey with you. You save for an addition or to upgrade on your house. You've worked hard for that, but then tomorrow comes April 15th, and you're paying more taxes than you expected, and there goes your savings into taxes. There's another thorn, and life has this built-in decay. It has this built-in decline with it. Somebody said, life is short, smile while you still have teeth. And we're all at that place of decay, of struggle. The thorns, the curses there. You go to the hospital. It's filled with people with disease and illness. They're there to receive care. You go to a nursing home or assisted living. And you're caring for a parent who's suffering from dementia. And as you care for them, they don't even remember your name. And it's a result of these thorns. And when Jesus takes the thorns on his head, it is symbolic that he takes the curse of sin upon himself. He bears within his body our curse. King Geyer in his book, Intimate Moments with the Savior, describes the mocking that took place in an imaginative way. Listen to what he writes. He says, they took Jesus into the praetorium, and a man shoves a stool toward him. Your throne, O king, sit. When Jesus starts to sit, the stool is pulled out from under him, and he falls lying motionless on the floor, and the room erupts in laughter, and the soldier extends a hand. Weakly, Jesus reaches for it, but as he does, the soldier balls his other hand into a fist and hits him. Amid the raucous laughter and the pools of blood streaming down from his nose, Jesus lies motionless, but only for a moment. And another soldier has taken a strand of thorns and woven it into a reef. A king's got to have a crown, and he smashes the thorns into Jesus' scalp using a stick. Jesus grimaces as the great spikes tear into his capillaries, and the curse of Eden is placed as a curse on him. Hell, king of the Jews, shouts the commanding officer, and the entire cohort kneels. But then the king is pelted with a volley of spits, then another and another, until at last 
he is drenched in their disdain. Friends, the, the crown that Jesus wore did not have the rubies like the great crowns that kings wore in the past, but it had something greater. It was his ruby red blood, which was given as a sacrifice to take away the curse from you and me. And we can trust Jesus because he so loves us to bear that curse. The second reason why what we learn from this crown is the loyalty displayed with the crown. The loyalty. I come to this scene of the mocking soldiers and it, and it is so humiliating. And I think about Jesus who was eternally boundless, who lived in eternity past and had no limitations and He comes into our time in space and He is imprisoned within our flesh and He is bounded. Limits are placed upon Him and the God who could reach across the universe is now limited by the length of His arm and His hand. He can reach no further. And I think about Jesus and his body, and his physical life, his mortality. Was he ever tempted to use his boundless powers? Was he in a city and maybe he was walking to another town and just kind of tired of walking? And was he tempted to maybe just transport himself to the next city? He could have done that. Could have been walking and on a journey and the rain was coming down and it's chilling him to the bones and he's cold. Is God, he could have just changed the weather and made it all pleasant. Was he tempted to do that? When he was tired, when he was worn out, when he was exhausted, did he think about just taking a trip to the Caribbean and going to the beach? getting a little rest and relaxation. He could have done that. But he never did. I don't even know if he thought about doing that. And whenever Jesus performed a miracle, it was never for his own comfort, but it was always for the good of those that he loved and served. He never did a miracle for himself the miracles of his healings, the miracles of changing the weather were all for the good of those that he came as a servant. And because of that, you can trust him. And it was there at this moment that he had the power of God. And when they were spitting at him, he could have taken their spit and turned it right back in their face. When they were putting the crown of thorns upon him, he could have paralyzed the hands of the man who was placing it there, but he didn't. And folks, I know if that were me in that place, I would have said, okay, guys, I've had enough. I'm God and you're toast. But Jesus didn't do that. And I'm glad he didn't. Because we can trust him. It's not about him, it was about us. I've got a friend and he's at a job and there's a new supervisor who is there. And he had a question. He called the new supervisor on some particular issue or some particular question. And the supervisor literally answered and said this, look, I'm the top dog around here. 
I'm the top dog, and so you need to call people who are under me, but you don't call the top dog with those kinds of questions. And Jesus here is the top dog of the universe. And as the top dog of the universe, he is wearing a crown of thorns to symbolic the type of ruler and king that he is. And do you know what makes you a great leader? Whether it's spiritually, whether it's as a parent or whatever capacity, morally or spiritually, is that you are concerned more about the well-being of others than you are your own. You are more concerned about people fulfilling the goals that God has set for them rather than having people fulfill your own goals. And as a leader, you promote others. And when you promote others, that takes loyalty and dedication and sacrificial service. It was a couple of years ago I learned something about leading. My niece was getting married and we knew there was going to be a nice celebration and dancing and all that kind of stuff. And, and Brenda and I had the idea. We thought, you know what? Instead of during the dance, instead of just being at the sidelines, how about we prepare ourselves to do that? How about we actually go on the dance floor? That's, dancing's not something we've done. We've not hit a lot of nightclubs or discos. And so we said, you know, let's, let's kind of work on that. And so I began looking at some YouTube videos and, and on, you know, some dance moves, some things we could do. And we began to practice dancing to prepare for my niece's wedding celebration. I don't know if you've ever heard the statement, dance as though no one is watching. We are literally glad that as we were practicing, no one was watching. And I can tell you right now that after that experience, I am not tempted to audition for So You Think You Can Dance. That's not going to happen. And I'm going to say that we did not have the best of experience. I thought after 25 years of marriage, we could kind of team up and work through anything, but that was one issue that was not good for our marriage. And then here's what I've learned that when it comes to dancing and you're the guy and you need to lead in that situation. It didn't really work for us, number one, because I don't really know how to dance. And so if you don't really know how to do it, if you're not competent in that skill, it's hard to lead somebody else in that, isn't it? But number two, the thing about dancing is that it's not a command and control. It's not you move here, you do this, you do this, you do this. There's this X factor, isn't it? There's kind of this rhythm that you catch, this connection, this harmony that you develop. And the guy who is leading in the dancing needs to know the nonverbal cues, the rhythms, the, the patterns of the person that he is leading. And if you can't do that, then you're not going to work out a harmony together. And it's the same way with leadership. The X factor of leadership is a loyalty to the good, to the promotion, and to the value of the other person. And when somebody senses that a leader has a loyalty to the good of the person or the people that they are leading, then that is the ingredients for developing a harmony, for a connection, to get everybody moving in the direction that they should. 
And that's what Jesus is doing right here. He is showing his loyalty. He is dying for us. He is sacrificing for us. It's in the military, the Navy SEALs. They experience probably one of the most difficult or rigorous trainings that anybody can experience. In fact, in the process of training to be a Navy SEAL, it is said that they can eat up to 7,000 calories a day, but they're still losing weight. In one particular week, they'll only get four hours of sleep. It is a rigorous, it is a grueling form of training. And I have told that there at the, the training area of the Navy SEAL, there is this bell. And at any point you want to drop out, any point that you want to quit, you can just go and ring the bell. And 70% of men who go to be a Navy SEAL will ring the bell. Only 30% will stay till the end. And folks, at any point, Jesus could have rung the bell. And he could have said, I've quit. But he was loyal to us. And he was loyal to the mission that God had given him. And because of his love and because of his loyalty, we can have this unbreakable trust in him that knows that when we submit to this king, this ruler who wore this crown of thrones, that he will lead us and direct us in a way that is for our good and in a way that is for his glory. Amen. Well, let me tie a bow on this. Let me give you a couple of things about this unbreakable trust that we develop with Jesus from his love and loyalty. Number one is this. Let Christ rule over your sin. Let Christ rule over your sin. When we come to this Good Friday, when we come to this Passion Week, Jesus provides the ultimate solution to the ultimate problem within the world, and that is our sin and selfishness. The question I've asked people hundreds of times is this. If you died today, and you went before the presence of God, and you looked at Jesus in the face, and he looked at you, and he asked you the question, why should I let you into my paradise? what would you say to him? And the response that people give to me to that question reveals a lot about what they believe about Christ, about eternity, and about the way to get there. And a lot of people have the idea that it's got, God has this bank account. And like if you've got more deposits than you have withdrawals, and your bank account stays relatively full, you're good with God, you're going to go to heaven. And people think, well, I think I've done more good than I've done bad. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that when we sin, even just one time, that the bank account has a complete withdrawal and it's shut down. We no longer have an account with God. We are totally bankrupt. We are separated from God because of our sin. But what happens is that when we trust Jesus Christ to forgive our sins and to be the leader of our life, 
We come under his leadership, his rulership as the God who wore that crown. He gives us another bank account, and it's completely full. And it's a bank account that our sin cannot take away, nor our good works can add to. And with this bank account that Jesus gives us with the purchase of his blood, it is continually drawing or giving interest for our blessings and our benefit in our life simply by trusting him. And he is the one who has completely taken away the problem of sin by trusting him. And we cannot add or take away from what his blood has purchased. The only thing we can do is to receive the blessing of the interest that his sacrifice has made. Look by way of the screen. Colossians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. It says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Number two, let Christ rule over your struggles. Let Christ rule over your struggles. Some of you this morning say, you know, I believe in Jesus. I believe in his death. I just don't feel close to him. I've trusted him. I'm a Christian, but I just don't feel close to him. There feels to be like there's some distance. And to those of you who are saying that, I I might want to say this, that there's a difference between understanding that Christ is, has identified with you on the cross. But if you come to that place where you have identified with Christ on the cross, yes, it is wonderful that he has identified with you. Yes, his sacrifice is wonderful. But have you identified with him? Because Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Yes, Christ identified with you, but do you identify with him? One of the greatest destroyers of love and loyalty in our culture is lust. Lust can come in all kinds of forms. Lust can happen in a lot of different ways, social media or interactions. And when lust comes in, to our lives, to battle with love and loyalty, we must realize that it is the exact opposite of what Jesus has displayed love and loyalty to be. And when we are battling with issues of lust, the Bible would tell us to draw our minds, to fix our minds on the sacrifice of Jesus as the model of our love. Look by way of the screen, Hebrews chapter 12 Verses 1 and 3, the writer of Hebrews said, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The writer of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus. 
And when those temptations and those images come into your mind, whatever the temptation may be, we need to launch a counterattack. We need to take our thoughts captive by considering who Jesus is and his sacrifice. And we cry out to God, oh God, deliver me from this and lead me to live in the blessings of a life that is pure. And when lust comes in to darken and shrink in our souls, we cry out to God and say, God, enlarge and fill my soul to be like that of Jesus, of pure love and loyalty. Jesus is on the cross. He's got the spikes in his hands. He's got the lacerations in his back. And there as his back is rubbing against the cross and the splinters of the wood are going into those lacerations and the spikes and the pain are causing such pain that Jesus will scream out. And instinctively, his head goes back against the wood and those, those thorns go deeper into his skull, deeper into his scalp, and he cries out. And he's there upon the cross, and he dies of asphyxiation. And the oxygen and the air that he's getting into his lungs is so precious little. And he has to preserve every possible breath in order to stay alive. But in the midst of that, he has seven words on the cross, and one of those words were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Jesus shows us the opposite of lust about taking people and consuming them for our own pleasures, but rather that we are to love people with a love and loyalty. And we remember the words of Paul, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself as a sacrifice for them. Remember Jesus in the battle of your mind. You're in a dark period of time right now. Jesus was at the darkest place there's ever been. You're battling demons right now, and Jesus battled every single demon of hell as he was upon the cross, and he overcame the darkness, and he shows that he is Lord of the darkness, and he walks with you through your darkness. Amen. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward, and the prayer team as well. And I want to close with Genesis 22. Genesis 22. When Jesus was crucified, do you know where he was crucified? It was at a place called Calvary. And Calvary was near a mountain range, a whole mountain range called Mount Moriah. And it's all part of the same limestone mountain or hill range. Now, it was 2,000 years before Jesus came. There was a man named Abraham, the founder and father of the Jews. And God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, and I want you to sacrifice him at Mount Moriah to the place that I will show you. And it wasn't just any place, it was a particular place. 
And so Abraham takes his son Isaac, a strong, young, vigorous man who could have easily beaten, who could have resisted his dad, Abraham, who is well past 100. And so they go to the place to make a burnt offering and a sacrifice. They take the knife, the rope, the wood. They take two other servants and they go to this mountain. And there at the mountain, they begin to set up for the sacrifice, the wood, everything for the burnt offering. And Isaac looks at his dad. He says, Dad, where is the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide. But son, it is you. You are the one I'm to sacrifice. And Isaac, though able to beat up his dad, he submits, he allows himself to be tied up. He goes upon this altar that is created. And Abraham lifts up the knife, and the angel of the Lord says, Stop. Now I know you fear the Lord. And there next to the sacrifice, real close, is this ram that's in this thicket these thorns. Its head is caught in these thorns. And God said, the Lord will provide. And on this mountain, God will provide for you. And this ram that was caught in these thorns, these thickets, its head was symbolic of how Jesus was caught in the thorns, in the rams, in the thickets, and all of the pain. And Abraham sacrificed that ram in place of his son. And when God loves us, when God has called us to himself, you're not an afterthought. You're not an accident. You're a part of his eternal plan. And so we know that love plus loyalty equals an unbreakable trust.